starting a new series this week titled, The God Who Is There. And the question is, do you want a relationship with the God who's there, or do you want a relationship with the God that you have imagined? If you say no to God and reject Him, do you want to reject the God who's there or reject the God you've simply heard about, which could be a caricature of God? It's very important that we know who God really is. Everybody wants to know about God, but how do we, how do we fit, find the God who's really there? Well, fortunately, God has revealed Himself to us. He wants us to know who He is. He wants a relationship with us. And He's revealed Himself in the natural world. And uh, the Bible says that we can look at creation and discern some things about God, such as His uh, power and His creativity. God has also revealed Himself throughout history in His mighty acts on our behalf. And ultimately, He's revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, His one and only Son, God in flesh. Now, the natural world we can examine even today, but what God has done in the past and what He said in the past and ultimately uh, Jesus' time on earth, the only way we can access that is through the Bible. But praise God, He had taken the time to uh, write down what He's done and what He's said, and He has preserved His Word for us today so that we can uh, learn about the God who is really there. Now, our understanding of God will never be exhaustive but it can be accurate. And God in His Word has given us everything we need for a life of godliness, everything we need in order to have a, a vibrant relationship with God that ultimately leads us into life everlasting with Him in heaven. So, this series is designed for us to learn about the God who is there and correct some of our uh, misunderstandings, which... If we're not really grounded in the Word, then uh, we, we tend to um, attach to our vision of God some things that are not actually correct and that hinder us from having a real relationship with the Lord. This is a 14-week series. We are indebted to Dr. Donald Carson, D.A. Carson. He's a research professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He wrote a book called The God Who Is There, and our sermons are coming from the chapter titles in his book. Incidentally, uh, Dr. Carson was my advisor when I was in seminary, uh, a top theologian and also a really great pastor, and uh, I've learned a lot from him, so there's lots that, that we can learn together from Dr. Carson. But really, he's just a guide for us as we unpack the Word of God. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2. Now, Sabrina has read this for us. And what, I'm, what I want to do is um, identify some things we learn about God from these first two chapters of Genesis and some things that we learn about ourselves. But before we get there, uh, let me say a few words about science and its relationship to the biblical account of creation because I'm sure all of us have encountered the argument that Science and the biblical account of a creation are incompatible, that they are mutually exclusive, 
And so you can either be a scientist or you can be a Bible-believing Christian. You can't be both because uh, they contradict each other. This is the word on the street. And so you can, uh, you can either accept what uh, the scientific method has uncovered about uh, the natural universe, or you can retain your, um, your belief in myths and the supernatural, but you can't have it uh, both and. Now, that is a false dichotomy, a false conflict. You can absolutely be a, a first-rate scientist and be a Bible-believing Christian. And so two points on that topic. Number one, uh, there's more ambiguity in the interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 than some Christians recognize. Um, when I read Genesis 1 and 2, my conclusion is God created the earth in seven 24-hour days. And since I'm... Uh, Uncompelled, even though I studied under, um, at the time, uh, one of the greatest evolutionists in the world, uh, I felt uncompelled to, to go away from that. And, but I don't believe that Genesis 1 and 2 demand a uh, belief in a seven-day, 24-hour uh, creation. There is more ambiguity or more opportunity, flexibility in the interpretation of these chapters. Uh, so, for example, Genesis 1 and 2 might not be uh, trying to give us a historical scientific account of how, exact, how exactly God created the earth. It, uh, it might, in fact, be more poetic, more uh, symbolic. Um, it's not necessarily a liter uh, historical genre. Um, also, there is... Uh, People make a, say, hey, between verses 2 and 3, there could be a huge gap. Could have been billions of years. Maybe God used the Big Bang to throw the, uh, all the matter and the stars into the sky. And then many, many, many years later, he got around to developing the earth. Uh, others say, remind us that the word, a Hebrew word translated day can also be a description for kind of periods of time, etc. Bottom line is... Uh, there is more flexibility. You can be a Bible-believing Christian who is trying to, to um, handle God's Word with integrity, and you even feel totally bound by the Word of God, but you acknowledge that there's some flexibility in, in what Genesis is actually saying. So I like what Carson says about this. Here's D.A. Carson. He said, I hold that the Genesis account is a mixed genre that feels like history and really does give us some historical particulars. At the same time, however, it is full of demonstrable symbolism. Sorting out what's symbolic and what's not is very difficult. So the point here is uh, I have encountered many Christians who try to, uh, I would say, bind my interpretive hands to the you can't be a faithful Christian. You cannot read the Bible faithfully unless you believe in a, a literal 27, 24-hour day creation, a young earth. It's no, no uh, older than you know, 6,000 years. Um, I don't believe that that, um, and you might have encountered it, and I don't think that that's, uh, that requirement is uh, legitimate. So just to kind of free us from that. Secondly, though, 
there is more ambiguity in the claims of science than some scientists recognize. So uh, maybe your high school uh, science teacher or your or college teacher uh, or magazine you read, radio, uh, sometimes what we hear is all scientists are completely sold on uh, the proof that the earth was created apart from God, right? Uh, scientists all are settled on the idea that uh, matter just came out of nowhere and then through random evolutionary processes uh, we came up with what we have and, and no, no scientist in the know has any heartburn about that explanation of the natural world. And that's not at all true. There are many first-rate scientists who are not at all uh, comfortable with the, the, the evolutionary explanation of the origin of the universe. Uh, and so uh, many scientists, uh, some of whom are Christian and others who aren't Christian, will point out uh, matter coming out of nothing. That doesn't make sense scientifically, right? We don't have an explanation for that. And uh, the evolutionary processes, uh, they have a hard time explaining uh, things like irreducible com uh, complexity and a lot of what we see. So here's the bottom line. The bottom line is the evolutionary theory is the best explanation, uh, a completely naturalistic explanation we have for the origin of the universe. But it is by no means foolproof. It's by no means convincing to everyone. But if you're going to try to explain the origin of the universe apart from God, it's the best that we've got. But there are many scientists who say, ah, I'm a, I, I believe in science, but at the same time, I have no problem um, believing that God uh, created all of this and, and uh, had a design to it and oversaw the processes, no matter what kind of processes he used. And so I want to point out a book. If you're interested, there's a book by William Dembski called titled Uncommon Descent, Intellectuals Who Find Darwinism Unconvincing. And uh, so th this is just underscoring the idea that there are a lot of scientists who uh, believe that a purely naturalistic explanation for the origin of the universe is, is full of flaws. So back to Genesis 1 and 2, what I want to do is, uh, there are, okay, so, there is some interpretive amb you know, ambiguity, but there's a whole lot that, that is unambiguous. There's a whole lot that Genesis 1 and 2 tell us about God and ourselves that uh, is just crystal clear. And in fact, the rest of the Bible builds on it. And the rest of the Bible wouldn't even make sense apart from uh, this understanding of who is God and who are we. And so what I want to do is, uh, talk now about some things about God that we learn from these first two chapters and some things about ourselves. Number one, some things about God. God simply is. In the beginning, God created. I love the fact that the Bible never, and this is actually, think about this. Isn't it fascinating that the Bible never once tries to prove the existence of God? Never do you encounter in Scripture. By the way, if you're doubting whether God exists, consider these things. 
it just assumes the existence of God. God is the background to the entire story, and I think that's very intentional. Because the Bible never puts us humans in a place where we get to determine whether or not there is a God. We, we aren't the judges of whether or not God exists. He does exist. He does exist, and all we need to determine is who am I in, in light of God and what is everything else in light of God. So the biblical story starts with God. And everything else, including you and I, everything else, we are derivatives. We are creatures, we're not the creator. And if, we, if our own story does not begin with God, we cannot make sense of our, our, ourselves and, and the world around us. This is huge, very huge. God simply is. Number two, God made everything that is not God. In the beginning, God. The beginning of what? The beginning of time and space. That, that had a starting point. Uh, but before that, there existed God. God, and then everything that God has created. Even Satan and the demons. So this, this excludes the yin and yang vision of the universe, where there's kind of a good and an evil uh, force, and they're battling each other. No, there is God, and everything else is a cr creature and doesn't, is not eternal. Right? So that puts God in a completely different category. We are not God. We are creatures. There is only one God. And that's the third point. There's only one God. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. What does that mean? It means that if you want a relationship with God, you've got to deal with the God who is there, who has revealed himself in the Bible. You don't get to pick and choose. You can't say, well, I'm not really liking the God I'm reading about here, so I'm going to go worship and uh, another God. Well, people actually have done that, right? Throughout history, it's called idolatry. They don't like the God who is there, and so they manufacture a God that they do like, and they worship that God, and they tell other people about that God, and, and in fact, millions upon millions of followers. But, as the Bible points out, it's not a real God, and it can't help you when it matters. So God, there is only one God. Number four, God is a talking God. This is very important. Why is this important? Well, we see this like in Genesis uh, 28. And God blessed them, Adam and Eve. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Why is it important that God is a talking God? It means that he has a will. That he wants to communicate to us. So God, um, by the way, when speech act theory points out correctly, I believe, that the only reason you ever say something is to effect some change in the world. If Sabrina says, Mike, your clothes are on the floor. 
that, there's a purpose behind that statement. I have learned that over 20, 21 years of marriage. She's not just, there's a reason she says that, right? She's trying to motivate me to pick up my clothes, both now and forevermore. When God talks, it talks because he has a will and he's seeking to enact that will. He's seeking to affect reality. So here we have, this means, this means that God is not just the watchmaker God. It means that God isn't just this impersonal force that has, you know, uh, kind of set everything in motion. This is a personal God who cares about us and has, you know, a plan for our lives. Number five, everything God makes is good. And God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was very good. Right? James tells us uh, that there, only all, all, everything God does is good. That there's no darkness in him, says John. Right? In him is light, and there is no darkness at all. God is morally good. He is perfect in every way. Why is that important? tells us about the character of God. And are you going to trust a God that you're not convinced is good? I wouldn't. But, but, but faith, Christ, the Christian life is built on this foundational belief that God is good. That all, everything he says to me, everything he does is for God for my good and for uh, the good, it's just for good, so that all things work together for good to those who love him are called according to his purpose. If you believe that God is good, well, then you're willing to entrust your life to him, especially when you combine that with the fact that he's all-powerful and he knows a heck of a lot more than you do. Then you're like, all right, Lord, I don't understand why my life is going this way, but I'm going to trust you because I know that you're good and my life is in your control. Okay, so here are some things that we learn about God uh, from Genesis 1 and 2 that the rest of the Bible, of course, builds on. And um, we will be unpacking during this series more that we learn about God because the Bi God continues to reveal himself um, throughout, throughout the scriptures. Now let's talk about some things we learn about ourselves. Number one, we learn that we are made in the image of of God, verse chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Humans are unique amongst all creation because we are created in the image of God. Uh, no other creature. That's not said about anyone else, just Humans and male and female, both men and women, are created in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? Uh, theologians, philosophers have written, you know, spilled a whole bunch of ink trying to uh, explain what it means to be created in the image of God, and I don't think uh, any of us have gotten it exhaustively uh, correct. But it certainly means some things. I mean, even in these first two chapters, we see Adam and Eve are talking like God is talking, that God was creative and he did work, and so Adam and Eve. But the rest of the Bible continues to flesh out what it means to be created in the image of God. Um, 
And so it's been pointed out that, you know, God never says be omnipresent for I am omnipresent, right? Be all-knowing for I am all-knowing. He doesn't say these things, but he does say be holy for I am holy, right? And uh, I want you to love for God is love. I want you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so systematic theologians have developed two lists. Uh, one of the lists is called the communicable attributes of God, and the other is called the incommunicable attributes of God. Communicable attributes of God are those attributes that we share with our Creator because we are uh, in His image. The incommunicable attributes are those that uh, attributes of God we don't share. Okay, But there's a, if you're interested, go look that up. There's a whole lot of communicable attributes that we share that are quite uh, ennobling, ignobling. And so as Christians, we don't, we don't say to ourselves, the life of an animal is equal to the life of a human. I remember in college, I was in a Russian history class. We were um, being shown slides of World War II, and there were just humans all over the battlefield, right, and Nazi concentration camps, slide after slide. And then there was a slide of a dead horse, and the, the class that had been largely silent went, oh, to the dead horse. And I thought, what in the world is wrong with us? The dead horse is tragic, but the dead horse is a, an animal. The people are created in the image of God. Second thing we learn about ourselves is that humans are made male and female. And so in chapter 2, that's teased out a little bit, how Eve is uh, created out of Adam's side, and he said, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and he receives her. And uh, we're told that Eve was created as a helper for Adam, uh, and that the two came together and became one flesh in, in marriage. Uh, and so, as you know, Jews and Christians uh, who read Genesis one and two recognize that uh, that uh, men and women are created to complement each each other, and we do not believe it's in our best interest to minimize the differences between men and women in in, in some attempt to kind of uh, equalize everything. Actually, we lose some, some stuff that's very beautiful when we try to um, say that men and women are basically the same. No, we're created differently. We're both created in the image of God, so we have equal value, and, uh, but we have uh, differing functions and differing uh, abilities. And that was God's design so that uh, the world would be a healthier place. And uh, marriage, a beautiful picture of marriage right here, of uh, the man and the woman, they uh, leave their families and, and they create a, a new family unit and they, um, they love each other. So the conflict only enters in when sin enters in, and that's not till next week. So we just got to be, <laughs> we got to be happy this week. Number three, we learn that humans have a God-given purpose. Uh, God didn't just create Adam and Eve and, and say, figure it out, do whatever you want to do. Uh, he tells them, uh, most basically here in, in chapter 28, be fruitful and multiply. Hmm, how do we do that? They figured that one out. And fill the earth and subdue it. Okay. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Yeah, okay. Uh, We call this the creation mandate. And so God gave them a purpose. And don't eat of the... They went out and did it. Now, God also gave them some some moral rules, right? Don't eat of the the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from when you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so God had a will for them, a purpose for them. Uh, and, and he has one for us. So when, when we come into the world, we, we don't start as a blank slate. Uh, there is a backdrop that, we, that it, a lot has been filled in for our story. All right, and finally, we see that Adam and Eve started out innocent. The last verse in chapter 2, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So at this point in the story, uh, no sin. They're naked and ashamed because they've done nothing shameful. They have never had a, an arrogant thought. They've never had a selfish impulse. They've never said a harsh word to each other. They've never resisted the rightful claim of their maker upon their lives. At this point, uh, they are loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they're loving their neighbor as themselves. And so there's no shame. They're naked and ashamed. And that was the way it was meant to be. It was good. It was very good. Uh, It was very good. And then comes chapter 3, but that's next week again. So let me talk now about uh, how Genesis chapters 1 and 2 fit into the whole Bible. Because this is just the beginning. But boy, a lot happens in the first two chapters. Uh, and you've got to get these chapters down because they fill in a lot of the backstory. Genesis 1 and 2 constitute the necessary background to chapter 3. Chapter 3 talks about Adam and Eve's um, choice to disobey God and the consequent fall from grace. We call it uh, chapter 3 about the fall, and James is going to unpack that for us next week. But you can't, unless you understand how good it was, you won't properly grieve what was lost, right? So you've got to sit in chapters 1 and 2 and think, man, look at what God offered us. Look what he made for us. Look at the way life was before sin, Ah, I wish I could get back to the garden. Number two, the New Testament looks forward to a new creation. So, this is a big theme in the New Testament. We are looking forward to the day when God will make a new heaven and a new earth. We will get back what has been lost. And so, as Christians, we, we long for that. We recognize that the world we live in now is broken. It has been broken by sin for thousands of years. Sin has worked its um, uh, destructiveness, its corruption, all the way down into the, you know, genetic level. It has corrupted everything. But this world is going to be destroyed, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to get back what uh, the first Adam lost because of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, praise his name. Number three, this story grounds the notion of human accountability and responsibility. 
And this is huge. So think about this. If, if you have a naturalistic understanding of the universe and you believe there is no God, that I just came about through random evolutionary processes, there's no purpose to my life, uh, I am be. I'm beholden to no one. Okay, mom and dad, they got a little sparkle in their eyes. Fine. You know, I'll, I'll give them some claps. But I don't, I don't really owe them. And I'm not going to have to give an accountable, uh, you know, account of my life to anybody, right? Just don't break the law. And so it's all about me. The Christian worldview is totally different. The Christian view, worldview starts with God and says, the only reason I exist is because God willed me into being. And he, has a, he did that for a, a reason. He has a purpose for my life. He, has, he expects me to live this life that he's given me a certain way. And actually, someday I'm going to stand before him and have to give an account to him for the way I've lived my life. In fact, I live, I move, and have my being in the will of God. If God were to stop willing me into existence, I wouldn't be. That's in, uh, by the way, that's true for Satan and, and the demons as well. They owe their very existence to the will of God, and when he stops willing it, it's game over. S do you realize that that's a very, very, very different way to, uh, to live and to view yourself? I am... I am accountable to God, and I am responsible to God for the way that I live my life. So the, the challenge today, I think, the, uh, the, the story takeaway, the thing I want you to wrestle with is, I want you to ask yourself this question. Does my story begin with God? You are telling yourself a story. I'm telling myself a story. Everyone on the planet tells himself or herself a story to make sense of life. We have to. Uh, by the way, God designed us that way. I think it's very interesting. But we tell ourselves a story to make sense of the world in which we live and our place in it. And for many people, their story begins right here. I think, therefore I am, and I will think about whether or not I believe there's a God and what kind of God I want there to be. And you know what? I don't think I want to be accountable to God, so I'm just going to claim that there is no God, or I'm going to say God hasn't given me the proof that I demand adequately to believe in Him, but the story starts with me. And how do I feel about other people? And how do I, what do I want to do with my life? And or does your story begin with God? In the beginning, God created. And I exist at his pleasure. And he has a purpose for my life. And I believe that I'm going to be happiest when I live in harmony with his created purpose because he's wisely designed me in such a way that I'm going to be healthiest and happiest when I'm uh, doing his will. Someday I'm going to give an account to God for the way I live my life. And I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter into my rest. Does your story begin with God? It makes all the difference.